A perhaps unanticipated effect of the pandemic has been a vast increase in the wealth of a small number of men and women who run big tech corporations around the world. Forbes magazine estimated that the richest tech moguls in the world increased their net wealth by an average of 56 percent in 2020 as a result of the pandemic and one assumes that a similar profit was to be had in 2021. And even a magazine like Forbes asked the question, uh, if someone has $6 billion, for what purpose would that person need another $4 billion in one year? The question is rhetorical, but it points to a disturbing fact about money, and to use the proper terms, uh, disturbing facts about avarice. But these are common knowledge. St. Thomas Aquinas, for example, condemned avarice as a deadly sin, in his words, precisely because it serves the desire for a profit that knows no limit. This is not just a profit, but a profit that knows no limit. And he talks about it as a desire, a disordered desire, as we'd say in moral theology. All desires, as I've been teaching uh, some of the guys in class recently, point at something good. Right? We desire things because we think they will be good for us. So, we, for instance, we desire to eat. We desire to be warm and sheltered. We desire good health, good friendships, fulfillment at work, those sorts of things. The fact that we desire these things means we don't have them now, uh, And this points to our radical incompleteness, that for me to feel complete, I have to acquire something that I don't have now. If I'm hungry, I need to eat, etc. Our bodies and our minds tend toward uh, what we might call entropy, to dissolution, falling apart. And so we, we need to be renewed and invigorated regularly, every day. We need to sleep. We need to eat. We can't be outdoors all the time, right? Now, the fact that our bodies and minds and spirits need constant renewal is suggestive of yet something else, that the things we use to address our desires never quite satisfy. They might satisfy for a moment. So, for for example, after a nice meal, we can relax because we're full. Or when we feel pleased in the company of an old friend whom we haven't seen in a while, Uh, The desire to see that person's been fulfilled. But eventually we're hungry again. And eventually our friend goes home. Or, if that friend hangs around, we might start to notice irritating things about him. Right? So the reemergence of hunger or dissatisfaction is a signal that desire is alive and well. We haven't eliminated desire just because we had a good meal or a good visit with a friend. And it seems from this perspective, all desires have a kind of limitlessness to them, right? Not just a desire for money. No desire is ever fully satisfied. They always keep coming back. The case of money is a special one, and I think it's why our Lord leads off uh, his sermon in the plain today, Uh, talking about the blessings of those who are poor, that money somehow symbolizes all of these. And this is why avarice is frequently considered a more serious sin involving bodily desires than unchastity or gluttony. 
Money is what economists call a fungible asset, which is to say it's interchangeable with virtually anything. It can stand for any desire, right? It offers the tantalizing possibility, a false one, of satisfying desire once and for all. If I have enough money, I can protect myself from any desire. But we already said desire is limitless. Unless you have an infinite amount of money, you're wrong about what money can do, right? So this is why, again, this gets back to my original question, which was actually asked by Forbes magazine. Why isn't six billion enough? Why four billion more in one year? Limitless desire needs an infinite good to satisfy it. That is to say that we humans among all creatures in the world, are uniquely created to desire God. The true God, the true good, who is truly infinite, whose gifts are meant to draw us to himself. So that good meal, that friendship, these are gifts from God to awaken in us a desire for him, the one good who will truly satisfy. So is that feeling of pain when the friend leaves. That's a sign that God is calling us to himself the one who can truly satisfy us. St. Paul and uh, his great disciple, St. Augustine, after him, recognized that something's gone askew in the world, that this, this pain of separation, these desires don't turn us toward God. Often enough, that doesn't happen. And perhaps most of the time we seek satisfaction in the creature rather than the creator. And it's for this reason that the Son of God becomes incarnate. He's sent on a rescue mission to to fix this problem. What do we read of Jesus in his earthly life? He was poor. He had no place to lay his head. He depended on the generosity of others, including his heavenly Father, for the necessities of life. He felt hunger, especially during his temptation in the desert. He wept over the infidelity of Jerusalem. He wept at the death of his friend Lazarus. So when he's pronouncing those who are poor and who hunger and who weep blessed, he's he's living that example. Furthermore, he was reviled. He was slandered and ultimately framed on trumped-up charges and put to death. So by assuming the limits of our life, by assuming those desires, but refusing to stop there, refusing to be satisfied in his temptations, refusing the allure of fame or power or wealth, Jesus begins to effect a cure for the desire, the disordered desires that go in the wrong directions. And in today's gospel, he offers us some strong teachings about reality. Blessed are the poor. He doesn't say whether these poor persons are kind. He doesn't say whether the poverty is their own fault. He just says, blessed are you. God will make up that lack that you have. And the fact that you have that lack means you can trust on God to make up that lack. Poverty forces us to leave all kinds of potential desires unsatisfied. And as a result, to be open to welcome the gifts of God. Lent is just around the corner. It's two and a half weeks away. Hope you're all getting ready. 
The church is going to invite us during those holy weeks to give alms, to become just a bit poorer, to fast and experience hunger, to weep for our sins, and to humble ourselves in prayer. And in our efforts to cultivate a purer desire for God himself, may our fasting and our almsgiving and our prayer make us imitators of his Son, who emptied himself, so that at the great Easter vigil we will joyfully welcome the coming of his kingdom.